Well, we're going to turn in our Bibles. I think we've got two Psalms to look at tonight. Uh, Psalm 118, a couple of verses from Psalm 118, and uh, a verse or two from Psalm, Psalm number 16. I'm just going to read from verse 18 to 24 of Psalm 118, and then if you can quickly turn to Psalm 16, or keep your finger in it or something, and I'm going to read from verse 9. Verse 11. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. It is marvellous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. The other verses that I want us to look at in Psalm 118. And in Psalm, Psalm 16, Therefore my heart is glad. And my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, of course, we are trying to understand the prophetic nature of the Bible. That's our sort of remit on a Thursday night at the, at the present minute. We are wanting to look at this book that we, we love so much. This book that God has given to us as a, a wonderful grace gift. This is his open letter to each and every one of us. And we want to see how set apart it is from any other book in history in that it has it is prophetic in nature and because of that we've made our way to the Psalms you know because of course if you if you can cast your minds back two or three weeks Christ directed us to the Psalms you know when he told us or he told his disciples that in the Psalms there were certain things that were written about him, about his ministry, about his life, and about his death. This is what he said to the, to the disciples on that occasion. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened up their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. You know, and we've already looked at his titles. He's the Messiah. He's the King of Zion. And of course he is the Son of God. We saw that uh, in Psalm 2 a number of weeks ago. And uh, last time we looked at uh, Psalm 22. And we saw uh, that he gave his life as a ransom 
for sinners as we looked at his uh, moment on the cross that awful moment for him and yet such a gracious moment for us when Jesus hung there in agony upon the cross giving his life as a ransom you know and there all that has all been uh, written down a thousand eight hundred to a thousand years before it actually happened now the the psalms are rife with such prophecies for instance we could go to psalm 45 uh, where we were would be faced with his pre-existence and there's a lovely verse there we all know it all your garments are scented with myrrh and alos and cassius out of your ivory out of the ivory palaces by which you have made they have made you glad it talks of where he's come from why he's come it's a wonderful psalm to look at we've looked at it many times in the past but there is a clue as to the pre-existence of our lord and savior jesus christ uh, it also tells us of his eternal sovereignty by you you were thrown O god is forever and forever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom so again we could spend another thursday night looking at psalm 45 and there are others as well that we could go to but tonight i want us to look at christ's resurrection the resurrection you know it follows on from our last study uh, a fortnight ago when we looked at psalm 22 and we talked about his crucifixion and um, tonight i want us to look at christ's resurrection again it's amazing that this quaint little uh, book of psalms actually refers to some of the greatest most powerful moments of history and you the resurrection being one of them the moment when the validity of christ's claims and the efficacy of christ's sacrifice were confirmed in no uncertain manner you see that the resurrection tells us that death could not hold him simply because he was basically there under false pretenses in that he had no guile in his mouth nor sin of his own in his heart and therefore no reason to come into its clutches he's the only uninvited guest into death the one who should never ever have stepped into that realm at all because he had no business there and there was no reason for him to be there other than the fact that he owned our sin and he died our death and he paid our penalty it was the only reason why he was there in the first place not a place for Christ he is life in him is life and here he is dead dead simply because he was our substitute and he bore our sin died our death and paid our penalty but we know don't we that Christ's righteousness made him too hot to handle too hot to handle and just like Jonah who a thousand years earlier had given that big fish such indigestion that it had to let go of its prey so the grave could hold him no longer 
as he burst through its bonds and became the first fruit of those who slept. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 would tell us, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. So we've read Psalm 16, or some verses from it, and Psalm 118, because they tell us, really, that all this resurrection business that we are rejoicing in and continually rejoicing, you know, we are resurrection people, and uh, it's because we've been raised with Christ that we are able to set our affections on the things of Christ. And that's why we're here. We're here because we are born again. We've been resurrected from the dead. All because Christ was our first fruits. And you know this resurrection business that we deal in or deal with was a foregone conclusion. Because God had already written it down a thousand years earlier. And I want us to pay particular attention to one of the verses that we find in Psalm 118. You know, and it's this verse, I believe, that links Christ to the resurrection prophetic utterances. Um, and it's a phrase that is quite familiar to us, and it's found in verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. The stone which the builders rejected has become chief, the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Now, if there ever was a phrase in the Old Testament that is repeated in the New Testament then this is the phrase. It's repeated quite the number of times and therefore it becomes a very special verse for us in the Psalms. It becomes what is called as a messianic verse because it deals in messianic principles. You want messianic prophecies. You want the first thing about this verse is that Christ attributes it, attributes the phrase to himself. You know, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus tells the, the parable of the wicked vine dressers. You know, and these are men who had sort of rented out uh, a vineyard from a certain landowner. And uh, when the landowner sent his servants to, to collect the rent, which probably would have been a percentage of the yield uh, of the vineyard, they beat them up, they kicked them out and they slew them and of course we know the parable we know the story that he did this on a number of occasions and um, at, in the, as a last sort of resort he said I will send my son because they will reverence my son but you see these wicked vine dressers they conspired together to destroy the son to kill the son in order to seize the inheritance for themselves. But the father came and destroyed their wicked 
aspirations. He came, he killed the son. He killed the son. But then he came and destroyed them and threw them up, threw them out. You know, and um, as Christ comes to the summing up of that parable, you know, which obviously relates to the the wickedness of the Jewish authorities who had uh, had uh, the hump with Jesus because he seemed to be coming to take over their place and take away their authority and usurp their authority and therefore they killed him as he had killed his servants before him. That was the, the parable that Jesus was speaking about. Then he hits um, with this verse, this very verse that we're looking at in Psalm 118. He says, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So yes, we can see that this is a messianic reference to Jesus. Uh, but Peter then takes it a little further. Now Jesus is representing himself. He's referring to himself. I am the son that you are going to kill. I am the one that you, um, that you lack reverence for. That you abuse. And then Peter goes on and he carries the theme a little bit further because then we go into Acts chapter 4. And it says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, if you can remember, this Acts chapter 4 comes immediately after Acts chapter 3, of course. As, as, does, uh, as does Acts chapter 5 come after chapter 4. But uh, the story of chapter 3 was the raising of this man by the gate beautiful. You know, and they caused a stir and they preached in the name of Jesus and uh, they were arrested for doing such a, a wonderful thing. You know, and, uh, and Peter stands up and he addresses these people and he says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you. Whole. This is the stone. That was rejected by you builders. Which has become the chief cornerstone. And so we can see that this verse. Not only is a messianic reference to Jesus. But it plainly tells us. That this event of rejection. Is actually fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. This is what it's about. This is what this Psalm 118 is telling us. That one day the sun will come. You and the wicked vine dressers will destroy him. They will reject him. They will abuse him. They will crucify him. They will bury him. And they will think that they've done away with him. And then all of a sudden that same Jesus whom you crucified will be raised from the dead and he will become the foundation stone upon which the faith that God has brought to the world, this church, this movement of people, will be built on. You know, and as I said, it, at this point, Peter is actually addressing the Sanhedrin. He's addressing the very people who destroyed Christ, who rejected Christ. These are the builders who wanted to build their own sort of physical edifice, their own empire, and here is God, or Christ. He's in the way. He's a thorn in the side. He's usurping. He's getting in the, into the wrong place. Let's get rid of him. 
and they reject him they destroy him or so they thought and yet all of a sudden here he is there's a man walking today says Peter not only is he walking but he's leaping and dancing and praising God he's doing that way because the stone that you rejected has become the chief cornerstone of his life and here he is in relationship with God more than you are you were so supposed to be the custodians of God his presence, his word, the oracles you were supposed to be the one that brings this to the world but you have destroyed or tried to destroy the one come in you rejected him the stone that was to be the corner and now this man this cripple this lame man who has spent his life begging, who, who was a drain on society, has been touched by the very one that you destroyed. And now he has become the cornerstone of that man's life. And not only is the cornerstone of that man's life, but he is the cornerstone of God's revelation. And God's church. And our destiny. It's all linked in with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know the beginning of that Little verse that we have on the board. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people, elders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, you are the ones, you are the builders that has rejected this stone. You know, and in claiming that the healing of the man at the beautiful gate was an act of the risen Christ, Peter introduces them to the one they had rejected as the Messiah and as the foundation stone of the faith that has grown out of Judaism according to the will and the purposes of God the faith that will be built entirely upon the foundation stone of Christ and him crucified and him raised from the dead and would be set to envelop the whole of the earth in its unique and life-giving message. You would have thought that at this point in time these men would be faced with the one they rejected. And wouldn't that be an awful thing? But people in this world today, they reject this person. And yet one day they will be faced with him. But you see the point of the matter is they should be faced with him today. Because this man that had never walked was praised, leaping and dancing and praising God and he became the vision of the, of the chief cornerstone he became the thorn in their flesh he became a portrait of Christ in his day and here we are we were not crippled laying at a beautiful gate or wishing for arms Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins dead and now we are very much alive. Alive to God. Alive in Christ. Sin, the power of sin has been taken away from us. The dominion of sin is not a part of our experience anymore. And so we should be leaping and, and jumping and praising God because of what He has done for us. Much more than this man. It's all He did for him was to give him legs. He's given us life. Life in abundance life eternal life assured and therefore the place that we belong to should know that by what we do and what we say but we know that 
many of their number, these people that Peter was talking to, had already heard this amazing and yet disturbing message. When on the day of Pentecost, that same Peter, you know the one who denied him three times, um, so don't be guilty if you've denied him three times because God has still got a use for you. He can still raise you up and uh, put you in front of a crowd of 3,000 to preach the gospel. So that's the one. The one who had denied him. The same Peter stood up and challenged the crowd with an explanation of what they had perpetrated just 53 days earlier when they dismissed Christ's claims as blasphemy. And this is what he said. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was impossible that he should be held by it. For David says, concerning him I foresaw the Lord always before my face for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad and moreover my flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Hades nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption you have made known to me the ways of life and you will make me full of joy in your presence. Now then, could there be a plainer explanation of the prophetic nature of Psalm 16 and Psalms 118? Both of them speak of resurrection and the resurrection of Christ in particular. And Peter even quotes the verses that David has written a thousand years and says what he talked about there is what has taken place here and because of this you know we could go again then to the prophet Joel and to say this what you see now is because of this and it's that what Joel prophesied that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh you see everything that is done at this point is but a fulfillment of what God had promised some hundreds of years before a thousand years before some six hundred years before God had promised everything you know here it is taking place what a moment what a moment to be alive wasn't Peter so lucky to be alive at this time. So that he could point to things in the Old Testament. That are actually taking place on that day. What a stroke of luck for Peter. And yet we are the same. You know there are things happening today. We are living in a time when prophecies are being fulfilled before our very eyes. And sometimes we don't even see them. Sometimes we don't understand them. And very rarely do we proclaim them. And yet Peter was so thrilled to be able to stand up and say, this is that what was spoken of by Joel. This is that what was spoken of by David. He wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Christ who died for you. 
and lay in a grave for you. And yet God brought forth, brought him forth from the dead. You know, we could go elsewhere and take a little trip around the Old Testament to see this omen of the resurrection. You know, if you went to Isaiah 53, which of course is a detailed account of the crucifixion. You know, if you wanted to know what crucifixion was and what happened there and what was accomplished there upon the cross, all we have to do is go to Isaiah 53 and we can see everything set out for us. The whys and uh, the, the wherefores and the wheres and the hows, they're all there housed in Isaiah 53. But the seeds of, of resurrection are also apparent in the language that Isaiah uses in that chapter and especially and particularly in verse 9 you know and we've done it before of course uh, a number of years ago but it bears repeating this is what it says and he made his grave with the wicked but in the rich but with the rich in his death because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth and I said to you last time go with the King James Version on this verse because all the other versions are a little off beam. They all say they made his grave with the wicked. You know, as if he was some kind of victim. You know, but as I say very often from this place, Christ was no victim. They didn't make his grave with the wicked. The true Bible says, or the real uh, translation says, he made his grave with the wicked. Why? Because he chose to become sin he who knew no son sin became sin he chose to present himself as the one who bore the sin of the whole world and therefore he chose to die as a criminal and therefore he chose to suffer the same fate as the criminal and that is to be slung into the refuse tip of Gehenna that was his choice he made his grave with the wicked. You know, when he took that body from God, when he was born of the virgin, when he walked the earth, when he presented himself to his captors, he says, I am the sin offering that you were looking for. And it was that moment that he made his grave with the wicked. He chose to do so. You know, but God, God was so satisfied with Christ's righteousness as he hung there in our place you know when you look at the situation it's difficult to understand it's difficult to comprehend I think because here is a father who is so in love with his son and so proud of his son knows him so well and knows how righteous he is knows how pure he is knows how holy he is you know Matthew was here a few weeks ago when he told us about the time when Christ was on the um, Mount of Transfiguration. You know, we've talked in times past about when Christ was on uh, the banks of the River Jordan and God himself couldn't keep his, uh, his silence. He couldn't hold it in no longer. You know, and he bursts through the clouds and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased in whom my righteousness is completely satisfied, in whom my holiness is completely mirrored, in whom my purity 
is completely displayed. Here he is. He's on the banks of the River Jordan. He spent 30 years of his life and he hasn't put one foot wrong in all those 30 years. And here he is at the end of three and a half years and he's on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know when he has gone through the most horrendous uh, temptation that any person has ever gone through. And yet here he is at the end of the three and a half years and I am still overwhelmed by his righteousness. That he is, and I'm still satisfied with his righteousness. I'm still overwhelmed by his purity and his holiness. He is the epitome of righteousness and holiness. He reflects me and here he is hanging on a cross. And what's on his back but the sins of mankind? Why are they there? They should be nowhere near him. This is the God who couldn't look at sin. Who couldn't even use his own eyes to look at sin. And yet here is his son. Burdened down with the sins of mankind. So there's this mystery. Of the pure one. The righteous one. The holy one. And yet clothed in sin. In sin. Can you get your head around that? Because I can't. That baffles me. That really, really baffles me. But you see, God was so satisfied with Christ's righteousness as He hung there in our place that He, God, after Christ had died, not before Christ had died, this wasn't Christ's doing, it was God's doing. You see, it was God who had to be satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. No one else. Only God. And as soon as Jesus died. God showed. His satisfaction. With, his, with the righteousness that his son. Died with. You know and. Um, after Christ died. God set about. To give his righteous son. A grave. With the rich. He made his grave. With the wicked. It's Gehenna for me. That's where I'll end up. Slung as a piece of refuse. Into a tip. That's where I deserve to be. Because of what I'm carrying. But God says. Oh. oh, oh. Your righteousness. Overwhelms me. Your purity. Satisfies me. Your holiness. Prefigures me. I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to put you in a grave. A rich man's grave. You know, and if there ever was a seedbed of resurrection, then Isaiah 53 verse 9 is that seedbed. Enter Joseph of Arimathea. Or as Terry calls him, Joseph. <laughs> You've got to come on Sunday morning to appreciate that. You know, the more observant would have seen that this burial of Christ's made his resurrection a foregone conclusion. You know, we haven't got to wait for three days wondering, was it good enough? Because it was good enough. He was good enough to pay the price of sin. And that's why Christ, God, buried him in a rich man's grave. How could the Father ever see his soul of his righteous son left in Hades? How could he allow his holy one 
to see corruption of course he couldn't because Christ was the perfect sacrifice and the righteous demands of this holy God were completely satisfied in that sacrifice and therefore God was pleased to raise him from the dead now notice in our verse from Psalm 16 the words holy one holy one you see his holiness was never ever in doubt his holiness had never ever been compromised he had never faltered never wandered never tampered never thought that's what we do when we to think about it you entertain it tamper with it move a little bit and then run away from it sometimes but with Christ never once did he falter never once did he compromise temptation that we would never have borne as I said to you a couple of weeks ago he sweat blood when he was tempted I don't know about you but I've never been that intense I'd given up way before then but he never gave up and his temptation was so severe and so intense that we would know nothing at all about that side of Christ but he never fault that it was never in doubt he is the holy one in the flesh you know Isaiah 47 and verse 4 says as for our redeemer the Lord of hosts is his name he is the holy one of Israel so notice the words holy one you will not allow you a holy one to see corruption but notice the words also his holy one his holy one and again we see that this resurrection of Jesus Christ upholds the claims that Christ was making concerning his own deity if you remember I said earlier that the Sanhedrin had rejected Christ and they had rejected him on the grounds of blasphemy we don't stone you for a good work, they say. We're trying to stone you for blasphemy because you, being a man, have made yourself God. And here he is, a mere man to the eye, claiming to be God. And that's why they got rid of him. That's why they got rid of him. But can you remember what he told us? He says, when you kill me, I will rise again. I will rise again. It's his claim. It's a claim. You know, it's a, it's a verifiable claim. In three days, he says. He didn't say in a thousand years. That would have been a load of nonsense. You kill me and in a thousand years, I'll rise again. Who's going to worry about that? In three days. Like Jonah, he said, in the whale. He's in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. So will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. That's my claim. That's verifiable. Check it out. On Easter Sunday. See if I'm there or not. You know, and that claim proved his other claim. Being the son of God. Anybody can say they're the son of God. David Icke have said he's the son of God. I haven't heard him saying that he'll die and rise again yet. But Jesus did. And here is the resurrection. Proving the claims of his own deity. You know when you think about it. God on the cross or when Christ was on the cross, God actually forsook him. We saw that a fortnight ago. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He forsook him. But you see, he didn't forsake him because he was displeased with him. In fact, the Bible says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. But he forsook him because he became sin. Because he was the epitome of you were sin, and you were sin, and you were sin, and you were sin, and my sin. That's why God forsook him. He had to. Because his eyes are too pure to look upon sin. And his son had become sin. And therefore, he forsook him. He didn't forsake him because he, dis- he was displeased with him. He forsook him because he had become sin. But in the resurrection, God owned him. He owned him. His Holy One. You will not allow His Holy One to suffer corruption. And so pleased was He with Jesus that He raised Him from the dead. He raised Him from the dead. Isaiah 10 and verse 17 And the light of Israel shall be for a fire and His Holy One for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. Who are we talking about? We are talking about Jesus. He is the light. He's the light of the world. He's the light of Israel. But look, he's the Holy One. No, he's his Holy One. And his Holy One is reckoned as a flame. And it shall burn up the briars and the thorns in one day. Thorns and briars. Where have they come from? What are they down there for? Well, aren't they the hallmarks of sin? Isn't that what the world has brought forth since the fall of Adam? Since the curse that God put on the world? You know, the, the earth will bring forth thorns and briars. You know, when man has tried for centuries to eradicate the thorns of sin in his life the briars of transgressions in his life but look Christ has consumed them all in one day as he hung there upon the cross one solitary day you know you were, we're amazed that God created the world in seven days or six days he rested on the seventh day But you see, sin was dealt with in one day. If you go to Zechariah chapter 6, you'll see the same. The branch of Jehovah will take away the sin of the world in one day. In 24 hours. You know, we can map 24 hours. The day that Christ hung upon the cross. It was a full 24 hours. And he took away the thorns and the briars as he hung there upon the cross why well because he is Christ he is his holy one he is the flame of righteousness but Peter moves on from resurrection in his own uh, epistle uh, in the first his first epistle and he again quotes Psalm 118 uh, he first lays the foundation of, re- of resurrection in chapter 2 and verse 4. He says, coming to him as a living stone, 
rejected indeed by man but chosen by God and precious precious and those two beautiful little phrases that have been added to that quote from Psalm 118 you know this is Peter's take on it he's chosen by God and he's precious he deserves honor he deserves the highest place how can you reject someone who deserves the highest place who deserves honor above honor above honor you know chosen by God how could humanity treat such a one with such disdain and such derision? How could they with wicked hands nail him to a tree when he is chosen of God and he is precious and he holds the place of honour and he deserves to be worshipped and adored and reverenced and highly exalted? That's where his place is. Who being in the form of God. That's where he is. That's where he deserves to be. And every one of us deserves to be on our knees before Him, worshipping Him, because that's who He is. But such was His desire to redeem us from the clutches of sin that He chose to become an object of offence. But this passage is all about the here and now. Death and resurrection has passed. Now Christ is seated again at the right hand of the majesty in high. Now he is together with his father upon the throne of eternity. And it's his church that is now the focal point. His body that is now what we are talking about. And it's the same person who died and rose again. That is the foundation stone of you and me and the church at large. Therefore to you who believe he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. But to you who believe, he is precious. It's a different word from the other precious that we had in the verse before. This word means he is priceless. For you who believe, he is priceless. He is our all in all. He is, a, he is our incomparable Christ. Priceless. But notice again, it's His resurrection. That is the focal point. The stone that was rejected has become the foundation stone. You know, and if you want to get a fuller picture of this amazing person, then go back a chapter in this amazing epistle and realize our hope our living hope rests upon this event we know as the resurrection. That our inheritance is guaranteed because of the living, the ever-living Christ. In fact, our eternal existence and our welfare is bound up by this amazing truth that Christ was delivered up for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Listen to what Peter says. In his first chapter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, 
and undefiled that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time the resurrection thank God for the resurrection I say because it means so much it has proved that he is the holy one that he is the pure one that he is the righteous one in the sight of God himself who was pleased with his sacrifice who was satisfied with his righteousness and raised him from the dead it has proved that it were, he is his holy one he is the son of God with power he is the one who has come from God and has returned to God this is the person that took upon himself the body of a man in order to die and bleed in our place here he is this is the one who guarantees our salvation our inheritance our hope our eternal welfare it's all down to this one who died and was raised again by the power of God so as we close tonight let's just remember that it is upon this foundation stone that was rejected of men as they crucified him with wicked hands nailed him to a cross but it's upon this foundation that we are all being built into a spiritual edifice a holy temple an abode for royalty a divine establishment verse 5 says you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and here again he is and here he is again are all the blessings that God affords are gained to us through the risen Christ there is no other no other way there is no other means of relationship no other means of fellowship it's only through Christ him crucified as we saw last time him resurrected as we see tonight for his name's sake